Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This episode is number 45 for May 4th, 2014. On this week's episode, you are what you eat and so is your baby. Epigenetics and how your diet during pregnancy may actually affect your child's health. There we go. Who do we have with us today? I know who we got. We have Christian Copley-Salem. He is a PhD candidate in cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yay! Yay! We have Dr. Dell Jackson. He is a PhD in biomedical engineering and a uh, an alumni of UNR. Hello, everybody. Oh, there are those sultry tones we've bum, grown bum, to bum. love. And, of course, Carolina Balkenbush. She is a registered dietitian out of Las Vegas, Nevada. Hello. Wait. Hello. She hails from Reno, though. She, let's, we are all. Sure let's do. keep that straight. We are all children do of UNR. Do not Carolina into a. No, I was actually corner. told this week. This is this is so crazy. I was giving a talk to the Southern Nevada Dietetic Association, and afterwards, somebody came up to me and they're like, "You didn't go to school down here, did you?" <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> you sound way too smart. Yeah, you, you seem to sell <laughs> yeah. of a soul. Well, wow. yeah, I went to Reno. And like, oh yeah, okay, that explains it. <laughs> Were you just upbeat, or what? Did they t- they say what tipped you off? It was it was. I just gave a super sciency talk, and I just <laughs> blinded them with science, and it was awesome. Uh, I have nice. to say though, speaking in front of a group where you can actually see your audience is completely different than speaking on a podcast. Uh, it is. You can't check your phone. Uh, you usually have to have clothes on too, like right now. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, you get a lot of feedback, and sometimes yes. it's not the feedback you want, and it's a little nerve-wracking because you're like, I see I've lost about 20% of these people, and that continues to rise during the talk. What am I going to do to bring this back on track? So at least you have At least you know that. to do that. Yeah. I know. Like I know. with the podcast, I don't know how many of our audience members are asleep when we're talking. I don't For even know you, how many no people one. are in the audience. I'm asleep while we're talking. It's the secret to my success so everybody else how was your week (laughs) (laughs) we're still going i lit my my mic turned off for like 14 seconds and i had no idea what was happening i was wondering why the show was flowing so well (laughs) (laughs) how dare you sir (laughs) oh my god i uh christian are you are you gonna do the three minute dissertation no oh you, you 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 walked away all right. Well, okay, let me tell you a story. First of all, I'm not qualified to actually sign up for it. Um, you have to have passed a qualifier to even sign up for it. No, I didn't say that was a strict rule, but uh-huh. Well, but on top of that, I don't have a thesis. Right. <laughs> so I would have had to have made up my thesis out of whole cloth, which is fine. I have no problem fabricating a, an entire PhD thesis, but I had to do it in two days because they needed – both the 250-word abstract and the PowerPoint slide to sign up. Yeah, that's a good point. And I didn't point. know that. And I had from – Heather gave it to me on Friday, and it was due on Sunday. If you have no idea what we're talking about, which by no all one's. rights you shouldn't have any idea what we're talking about, they, the university has decided to do this thing, which I guess is becoming quite popular throughout universities in the nation. And even – like I think it even started in Australia or somewhere in Europe. Who knows? Not here. Um, where – you basically get a single static slide to present up on a screen, and you have three minutes to describe your 
all the work you're doing in your dissertation um, to a lay audience and you are basically there are winners and prizes and all that sort of stuff. But it's kind of fun to watch people how they can explain their work in a non-sciencey way using one slide in three minutes. It's not a lot of time, and it's it's fun to watch. And it, I guess what they the whole intent is that they put these things up on the website for the university, and it allows people to see what researcher people what what research the scientists and whatnot are doing at their university in a way that's very easy and quick to digest. So, uh, I, you know, I'm all for it. Uh, Senny and I are doing it, another, another person in our lab. So Yeah, Senny's doing it because I convinced her to do it, uh-huh. and then I didn't. Good for you. That sounds like, great. I we, should, uh, that... we should let people do that from across the country on our show. Yeah, we should. Three awesome. minutes. I, I couldn't agree more. See, but I thought I had time to develop it and I just had to sign up you know like put in my name or whatever but no you right. had to have everything basically done in two days and oh, without yeah. a real thesis going that's I can't fabricate a fake thesis in two days I assume the 250 word abstract was it took me five to be, years it took <laughs> everyone five years so right. anyways uh, we're going too far into this but yes that's that's what I did today and in the past couple days and I I've and it will be fun we'll see how it goes are you going to share it with us when you're ready uh, well, I'll do one up that I'll, I'll, the university is going to put all these up on YouTube or something. So I'll post a link to our, to my Ooh. presentation once it's there. Fantastic. So cool. So, um, anyone else do something fun or did you talk about that in the 14 seconds where I was blacked out? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I, I didn't do anything fun or exciting. Yeah. I was busy this week. Brandon's off for two weeks. And so I don't have a lot of time and. You know, someone in the house all the time, it occupies your, your life. I bet. So. And your stomach, sure. is he cooking gangbusters? Tonight was um, Indian tacos. Native we call them native tacos. We Thank don't. <laughs> <laughs> was this like a, like a curry taco? No, okay. No, it's, it's like Native American. Oh. Yeah. Oh, the... It's, the nonsense you were being uns- insensitive excuse me I <laughs> not we not we christian, <laughs> christian. were they, they buffalo actually are, they're actually called indian tacos and the only thing that makes them indian tacos and not regular tacos is that they're on fry bread which is um sort of a, a heritage that a lot of native american tribes have because when they were put on reservations originally they were given like flour and baking soda and so that's really what fry bread is. It's flour and baking soda, deep fried. And smallpox. Yeah, that too. Um, okay. Uh, Dar- so, Speaking of Indians, Dharma's making us eat a lot more buffalo. She's on a buffalo kick. Sounds gross. If you're so interested. It, it's it's beef, but a little leaner and just a, a hair of gaminess to it. And I don't Ooh. say that in a bad way. Uh, gamey meat, I think, has a lot of character. There's, there's bad gamey meat. There's good gamey meat. I would definitely by gamey I mean like it's you a. You could never say that five times fast. <laughs> bad gamey, good gamey, bad gamey. <laughs> so uh, it's got a little grassiness to it, but yeah, okay. If you try a buffalo burger, you'll enjoy it. Mm, sounds delightful. Put cheese on it though, because they're really lean and it needs the fat. So, anyways, mm. we're uh, we're going into the weeds. <laughs> Should we push forward? Sweet. Everyone is being very quiet tonight. I'm concerned. Low energy. It it's is low, low energy. Have, you still have two minutes in the introduction. Like I've. Two more minutes? I don't think I can punish our listeners with two more minutes of this. Yeah, no. Let's move on. Let's segue into a little science. (laughs) Blast?
<laughs> Was that a question? All right, we're done. <laughs> I don't know what just happened. Did we just Carolina? Did you? I don't think I'm not allowed I've to announce just been it. Just usurped, so sir. Scott lost control of the show. <laughs> I never had control. It's one of those things where you ever walk. Who's walking... gonna fire the first pew? Christian did. He. I did. Oh, pew. He did? Yeah, I was like, yeah, science blast pew. Let's move on. Oh, <laughs> huh, oh we fail. I feel like when this show started, when the Skype call began, before the show even started, it's like tell them how we record. When the guy, <laughs> a multi-million-dollar studio right now. You know, when the when in the old timeies times when the guy walked out of the saloon and the streets were a little desolate and he could tell that badness was coming towards him, even though nothing was there. That is what I felt when we started the show. There was a tumbleweed rolling across the set. So, nice. What are you talking about? I'm don't I don't be superstitious. Know. <laughs> Boom. You're so weird. Dell, can you please tell us a story? <laughs> so, um are you guys aware of what Northwestern has done in terms of unionizing? Whoa. Unionizing the um the football players? Yeah, so I, I guess what's it. good for the jocks is what's good for the nerds, because now at Yale University, the nerds, I mean grad students, are tr- attempting to form a union. Would that be a nerd herd? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So oh about a thousand grad students have signed a petition at Yale, and they are now represented by an unrecognized um, union. Uh, and the local Teamsters are supporting them, of course, and they are trying to become officially recognized. And I guess why is this a science blast worthy topic? Well, it's because most scientists uh, at one point were grad students, and all you know the shared experience of being a grad student. It's quite hard. Uh, evidently, things are getting even tougher. Where Grad students are being asked at various institutions across the country to adopt, assume more of the teaching responsibilities. So now, in an attempt to have feedback to the university, the grad students are organizing and forming unions. And so they feel that since they do the majority of the research and teaching, that they should have a say in how it gets done. And um, I guess this is news because it's at Yale, but there were two nearby institutions, University of Connecticut and NYU, that have recently formed unions. So this might be a way of the future. You guys might now have official representation as grad students. So wow. what do you what do you think? Fellow uh, grads, uh, I went for a union. Like it wasn't great, union? But... Yeah, I think there it can be good and bad. I mean, I, I'm happy with my overlords. Like, I'm in a situation where my masters have been kind to me, you yeah. know? So I don't have a lot of complaints, but I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a lot I, I'm just ignorant to that I'm, I should be wanting more. I don't know. I, I'm happy with my situation. Well, I, but see, here's the problem. That's great. Scott and I are in the same position. Neither one of us is in a position where we're being, quote-unquote, abused in any way. Um, probably quite the opposite, but if you, what leverage do you have? I'm in a strike. Okay, your thesis isn't getting done. Um, like it, you don't really have that sort of leverage to 
make demands. Right. Which or, is why it's such mm-hmm. a terrible, quote-unquote, terrible thing in the first place, because there's no leverage in order to change. Like, you can't strike. You can't just say, oh, I'm not going to do my research. All my cells are dead. You know, the project I've been working on has been scooped. I mean, whatever. You can't, you're not in a position to just walk off the job. Yeah, and it's, I, I guess maybe a union could help um, kind of uh, standardize requirements, not necessarily graduation requirements, but maybe there are some, you know, PIs, these pe- people who run the labs that really are unreasonable in their request of their students about not just the number of hours need to work, but minimum publication requirements, things that are way above and beyond what are actually required for the degree. And so maybe that would rein them in a bit to say, these are not people for you just to kick around to to give you more clout within the community because more papers are being published with your name on them. So, um, so you know, I, I suppose that that could be one thing. Yeah, I could see that being definitely a positive. What about for students who are just kind of slackers and they just stick around forever in grad school? Would the union kind of protect them from getting, I guess, kicked out of a sure, graduate program the, or not being able to The good with the bad. Yeah, I don't know. We have a couple of those at UNR. There's one dude that's been there for like <laughs> nine years. No, I'm not kidding. I think he's at nine years right now. Yeah. Well, you, they, can't, they can't pay you after eight. Uh, you actually... Maybe it's eight years. It's Ill, you cannot be paid. Yeah, but I mean, it mm-hmm. happens. So anyway, um, yeah. I mean, who knows? Let's, I'm glad they're the guinea pigs. We'll see how it works out. Yeah. I'm just not that motivated to join these types of groups normally. Not even, you know because what I mean? Because your life is awesome, dude. Our job, <laughs> our lab, our whole setup is so incredibly awesome compared to what other people might have it is so true you're right we have no way of knowing we have literally no way of knowing yes what goes on in the real world (laughs) we will soon (laughs) yeah well cool well keep us informed how uh this yell thing works out del for sure cool uh carolina what do you got for us i have a science blast about <laughs> blast away <laughs> boom i think it might help to explain why you're getting such a weird vibe from the show tonight scott please i was reading this week in nature news about uh mice and that mice are afraid of men mm-hmm. and it turns out that male experimenters uh induce quite a bit of fear in mice and uh <laughs> They they have uh, they, they discovered this kind of by accident. They're doing some pain research up in um, at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and Jeffrey Mogul is the pain researcher there. And so um, he was looking he was looking at how much pain is induced in mice when you uh, inject their ankles, I guess, with a very painful substance. And what he found is that um, as soon as he left the room, the mice would start nursing their wounds so it seemed that him being around seemed to decrease their response to pain and then when his female assistant was in the room injecting the mice it didn't seem to have that same effect the mice would right away start nursing their wound um and so he was trying to figure out why on earth you know are these mice not in as much pain when a man is around compared to when when a woman is around so then they thought to measure um measure the amount of corticosterone in their blood, which is um, an animal's stress hormone level. And they found that um, when a man is around, they have higher stress hormone levels, which temporarily uh, quashes the pain response that these animals are having. So it's kind of like if you think about um, an animal being being chased. If, if you, the example that I read um, in one article was saying that if you have a deer running away from a wolf, 
uh, the deer is completely freaked out. And so, you know, if it, if it strains its ankle, it's probably not going to stop to take care of its ankle. It's going to keep on running. Um, whereas if it was just in a calm situation and strained its ankle, it would probably stop and take care of that. Um, so it's your body's, uh, stress is your body's way of, uh, kind of overcompensating pain when it's a dangerous situation. So it, it, it was interesting. Not only did a human male, um, cause these mice to be stressed out. Also, other species of male animals, like guinea pigs and cats and dogs, have the same exact effect. And so did just having, like, a T-shirt from a male researcher in the room had the same effect on the mice. Um, the only thing that didn't was, like, other male mice in the same cage with the animals. So this is kind of, uh, this might have really interesting implications on research, kind of like we talked about a few months ago, about temperature having an yeah. effect on mice. Um, apparently whether you're using a male or a female, um, researcher in the room with the mice can have an effect, uh, depending on what you're measuring. Huh. So That's pretty crazy, crazy stuff. It's yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't, they don't know if this translates necessarily to, to people and whether people have the same kind of response around other, you know, men, but pretty interesting for animal research. Were you around so Christian you when your boss talked about that? No, she she read the article <laughs> and she comes into the lab and she's like, it's a fi she works with mice and this is Christian's boss and she she's like, no Ben near the mice. I don't want him messing up with my experiments. Like, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> she makes me laugh. Well, I think my favorite thing about this was I didn't even know that they had something called a mouse grimace scale, which which is like a systematic way of measuring how much pain mice are in based on their facial expressions and how much they squint their eyes and wiggle so like their a, their whiskers. It's a whisker eye thing. Yeah, it's like oh. a puffy cheek, eyes bulging kind of scale. They, they show pictures. They're examples. That's cool. That about that weird. whole pain response thing, too, it's like um, it, the most common thing is, you know, when men get in fights or if the, you fall or whatever. Because I'm convinced that, like, between the – if you get a serious injury as a male between the age of, like, 18 and 25 – like nine times out of ten, the first thing out of that person's mouth is "I'm okay," you know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and then, yeah. and then it's like six seconds later where like they just start falling apart or die or whatever the case may be. It's always like <laughs> "I'm fine, I'm fine," and then, boom, and then they die. I am not fine. <laughs> you, I keep, I keep stepping on Dell. We we want to talk at the same time. What are you saying, Dell? I'm sorry. I I forget. Oh. <laughs> That's fantastic. Right. See, this is why we need the uh, the old iPad thing again, where we can see each other. Yeah, I think we need to do that. All right, we'll try it again. Try it oh, again. No. oh no! But our audience doesn't care. They just <laughs> want to know about the meat of the sandwich. You know, what? maybe they actually want to see us. No. <laughs> they, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't want to see me right now. Uh, I'm getting all these visuals. Dell talked about and. Now Christian and I just, uh, mm, okay. <laughs> what well, all I'm gonna do is go online and find loop videos of like Chris Evans, and I'll just put that in for me, and everyone will be like, "Oh wow, look at that!" Who's Chris Evans? What? Captain America? <laughs> oh, that's right. Scott doesn't watch any of those movies. No, I've seen two or two of them. I don't even know. <laughs> Out of like twelve. <laughs> I know who Captain America is. I just didn't know it was Chris Evans. He is a delightful-looking man. I'm perfectly willing to accept that. Okay. He actually looks like my brother. I'm not kidding. Captain America looks just like my brother. 
Great story. <laughs> Carolina was trying to push this show forward. Can you try it one more time? Kickstart this lawnmower? Sure. Okay, so bottom line, um, probably the reason I get so nervous on this show is just because it's all men around and, you know, males just cause super stress. Let's move on to the meat of the sandwich. <laughs> Okay, so (laughs) epigenetics and your diet during pregnancy and birth. Uh, One of our listeners, Aaron, uh, who who always puts good stuff up, that's why we talk about his suggestions quite a bit, Uh, he'd put a post up and and, um, he's been doing some cheerleading and he's bringing some friends in and telling them to listen to the show. It's all wonderfully appreciated, but uh, what he'd mentioned was an article from NPR that was basically saying that what a woman eats during pregnancy uh, epigenetically can have a huge effect on the infant. And it's not only its state of well-being during during uh, development, but also throughout the, the child's entire life. So um, epigenetics, though. So what is it? Uh, we've talked about it before real briefly. Uh, it literally means above the gene. So it's not your genome itself, but it's some modifications being done to the genome. And it's a method that your cells use to kind of change how active some of your genes are without actually changing the gene itself. You know, and generally... When we say methylation or when we say epigenetics, we're talking about methylation or acetylation, which means that either a methyl group or an acetyl group finds its way into the nucleus of the cell where it will either do one of two things. It will bind to uh, these proteins called histones, which your DNA wraps around, and that will either expose the DNA so it can be made into RNA or it will shield it so that it cannot be transcribed in anything. So it either makes it available or hides it. The DNA itself can actually directly be methylated too. And this has a more lasting effect. These, these It doesn't tend to, to change quite as readily as the, the, the histomethylation. But um, it, in, in essence, it will activate or it will silence the gene. Methylation will silence it. In reality, though, both histone methylation and DNA methylations, they work in concert to kind of control this gene silencing. The end state for any methylation or acetylation is that some proteins in the new cell can now be made in greater abundance or other proteins will essentially be shut off. The kind of end state here is that methylation is kind of like this master power breaker for the gene. Uh, If a histone, or in this case, the DNA is directly methylated, that gene is essentially shut off so you can't make proteins, and and that that cell will be greatly affected about about how it's going to develop and and basically what its role is going to be. So if we think about developing a fetus, this can all be insanely important. You know, we start out as a single cell that turns into billions and billions of cells. The one cell, the initial cell, needs to differentiate into liver cells, neurons, heart cells, the whole shebang. And during different phases of pregnancy, it's this DNA methylation that can change wildly and has really different effects on the developing uh, blastocyst, the, the child, so that those cells can change into different types of cells. So it would make sense that if the food you're eating uh, uh, uh can affect the methylation that it would have great effects on how that that embryo is developing. So this all kind of makes logical sense, you know, that the diet of the mother and subsequently all those nutrients, good or bad, that make their way to the fetus will affect how it's going to develop. You know, a, a kind of a, a classical case of epigenetics where they've shown this time and time again, and this is this is highly proven, is queen bees. Um, if we're going to go into the bee world, and 
Queens are raised in these specially constructed cells called queen cups, and they're filled with something, a real term here, royal jelly. Um, royal jelly is this complex, protein-rich substance that's secreted from the glands and the heads of the worker bees. So royal jelly, it silences this one gene called uh, DNMT3, which codes for an enzyme that silences a group of, of genes that will make or not make a, a, the queen bee. So when DMT3 is turned on in a normal state, this this larva turns into a normal adult working variety uh, uh, bee. But when royal jelly is turned, when it turns off this gene epigenetically, the gene uh, then jumps into action and then it, the, the animal is turned into a, a, um, turn into a queen. So this is classic uh, uh, epigenetics where some chemical that the, the larva is, is, is introduced to during its pregnancy, so to speak, it will greatly affect the outcome of that. So now let's go to the article we're, that, that was suggested here. This is an NPR. And the article, I should always, uh, it, it generally points to uh, research involving agouti mice. Uh, so let's not forget, these are mice. Wait, what What mice? Agouti mice. And that refers to the color of the fur. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about what, what agouti mice are. And a lot of the bro- broad-reaching kind of, uh, you know, uh, consequences that have been derived from this research are based strictly on the mice model and that's great and all and it probably does correlate on some levels to humans but it's not humans i just always want to start with that disclaimer there so the a couple different studies were done here so one involved um well they both involved agouti mice and one involved exposure to bpa which is bisphenol a which we all remember is that chemical in plastics that's caused all the hubbub recently and you're supposed to take it out because it's got it had all these different effects and and whatnot um and the other involved a high fat diet during pregnancy so agouti uh del is is a gene it's classically associated with fur color in mice, but in cases where the gene is highly expressed, you actually get much higher incidences of obesity in this mice just based on the expression of this agouti gene. And the mice tend to have these insatiable appetites and they get very obese. So they're used as this epigenetic marker to basically create obese mice here. And when the um, so what they found is that when you take a pregnant yellow agouti mice mouse, this is one of the this is a a mother whose whose agouti gene has been activated, the fat gene, and they were fed BPA, they had more yellow unhealthy babies that were born than normal. So exposure to BPA during this early development actually decreased the methylation on this agouti gene. Remember, methylation is going to silence a gene. So just by having BPA present in their diet. Decreased agouti gene methylation, increased expression of that, very yellow mice, very obese mice. So here's a classic epigenetic case of DNA methylation where BPA was causing obese mice simply by a chemical introduced during during the fetal developing year. So however, though, what they found was that if you expose BPA, the, the agouti mice to the BPA, the pregnant yellow mice were also fed a methyl-rich food, which means that uh, that the, this methylation was, or at least the the proponent for the methylation was readily available in the term in in in, um, in terms of folic acid. They they gave the mouse folic acid. The offsprings were predominantly brown, not agouti, and the maternal nutrient supplement sub, supplementation it counteracted the negative effects of the BPA. In other words, 
they always tell mothers to have folic acid. We've all heard this, right? It's important to have folic acid in your diet during during development. And what it's, it's epigenetically or and chemically, what we're finding out is that it's the folic acid provides a lot of methyl uh, group available to the developing fetus. And even when they were exposed to BPA, there was enough methyl groups around to methylate this one gene here for the agouti mice to make it so that the it overpowered the the exposure of the the BPA. And um, this is important because when right when you first get pregnant during that first couple weeks, actually, the embryo pretty much demethylates all of its DNA. And then it slowly starts remethylating it. And then it goes through another demethylation or remethylation. But it's a very dynamic environment for these cells because these cells need to turn into a whole bunch of different types of other cells. And it's very important that the DNA is very dynamic. So if you're having BPA or, um, or a high fat diet, uh, and it's affecting the available uh, methyl groups uh, around, then it will affect how that embryo actually develops here. You know, and it doesn't even just affect this first couple weeks of methylation. It actually can affect you uh, late stages of pregnancy and birth as too. This man named Thomas Horvath, uh, he had a paper called Neonatal Insulin Action Impairs Hypothalamic neurosurgic circuit formation in response to maternal high fat feeding. So before we were talking about BPA, how that can have an effect. And that was really one of the main papers that said, this is why you should not have BPA in your diet, especially they took it out of the baby bottles and stuff. So this is talking about it, just a high fat diet in the mother. This is in mice as well, but they looked at mothers who were fed a high fat, unhealthy diet. And, and these are mice again. So the pups uh, whose mothers had a high fat diet uh, during in utero had impaired connections and in, uh, in neuronal connections and they were unable to regulate glucose in the same way um, that a normal mouse normal mouse would and this is entirely unexpected because plenty of studies have shown that humans who are obese have children who are obese but the, the researchers researchers found and this is interesting is that um, these neuronal changes changes also showed up in the offspring of mice who weren't obese but were fed a high fat diet. So you can be a a healthy mother, you can exercise, and then all of a sudden you become pregnant. And now you just—I'm not saying anyone does this, but now you you're 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 not you don't exercise. You eat a high fat diet. You want ice cream or whatever the case may be because you're pregnant and you just don't care. And this can actually have an effect on your children because uh, normal weight women with a high fat diet also had children who were born essentially insulin uh, with insulin deficiencies and, and how they process that. So this basically suggests that even normal weight moms need to watch their diet if they want to avoid kind of putting their kids in, you know, in, in a bad place right out of the gate. And for the 10,000th time, this is done in mice, not in humans. And I remember I was reading one of these blogs and they had said, you know, don't blame the mother or all this sort of stuff. And that's one approach and it's a wrong approach, which is, you know, these mothers are going through a lot. They're doing their best and all sort of stuff. But yeah, you wouldn't be so kind if they were doing methamphetamines or alcohol or smoking because we all know that has horrible epigenetic effects too. So unfortunately, what the data is beginning to show, and it's not conclusive yet, is that you really do need to be very careful with... Um, what you're eating. You don't want to have an incredibly high weight diet or high fat diet. You do not want to be more than, I think they said 40 pounds of weight gain during your pregnancy because that has a similar effect. And you have to watch what chemicals you're putting in your body. I mean, it, this, these are all logical things on some level, but that we're just starting to develop the science to, to, to show that. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it's just, it's interesting. I, what, what do they consider a high-fat diet for mice? Like what percentage of calories were uh, coming from fat? I think it was 40%. I would have to look to make sure. It was... Um, uh, and, it, and it's not going to be a direct analog because I think mice require a higher fat diet than humans. I, I can't say for sure I don't deal with mice in the lab. But their their nutritional rec- protein fat requirements I, I don't think will parallel humans. So I don't know if it would be a direct correlation there. Is that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's And, you know, this research has with the, the other one that I was mentioning earlier. You can't You can't just translate it to humans directly, just like you're saying. But it is interesting because you know if if it does if it does um, cross over to to people in humans, you're saying that very early in pregnancy this is significant. The, you know, yeah, a lot of people won't even realize that they're pregnant. You hit the nail on the head, and that's something the research has brought up: is that some of the most critical DNA demethylation methylation events occur within the first week of pregnancy, and a vast majority of people, unless you're trying very hard to have a child and you're very aware of what's happening with your body have no idea they're pregnant for often weeks so it's kind of be really worried but there's not much you can do about it you know (laughs) if you're sexually active um and and of childbearing age and you're not under contraception be careful because uh the choices you're making uh, inadvertently very early on in your pregnancy can have really extensive long-term effects you know kind of the way they pointed out is that in this is an important kind of aspect of it it's like oh my gosh if i don't have folic acid or if i if i eat a high fat diet my child's life is ruined they're going to be diabetic and have autism or whatever um is that and this is a good definition of how epigenetics work and i like this someone else said this it was that Epigenetics is just, if you were to go to the top of a mountain and you had a big boulder and you were going to roll it down the mountain, that's the gene kind of producing proteins down the mountain. If you, uh, methylation is essentially just digging grooves into the side of the mountain. It doesn't mean that that rock is, it can go a million directions. It doesn't mean it's going to follow that groove, but the more you will, will say, you know, uh, you know, drink or whatever during, during, uh, you know, I don't know if alcohol has strong methylating effects, but just for, in this case, if you drink a lot, you're going to dig a deeper groove for that rock to follow. And it's just statistically is more likely that that rock's going to fall into the rut, the deeper and deeper you dig it. So it's not the be all end all, but it certainly helps influence the way that rock is ultimately going to go down the mountain. You know, another group here, they even, they were linking autism and DNA methylation. They wanted to, um, they understand kind of how it played into the if, if if at all it played into the autism and they actually took uh, a bunch of uh, 19 autism cases and 21 unrelated brain injury cases and they compared the CPG loci which are uh, it's cytosine phosphate guanine but it's a it's a section of DNA that's highly methylated uh, in your brain a, a section of DNA and they looked for correlations they actually started to find some some decent correlations between between DNA methylation and autism now they didn't go so far as to say what they thought was causing the methylation but kind of to tie into this it, it's very very clear that methylation during development and even right after birth um, including mother's milk um, can can have a, a pretty significant effect on, on the child's outcome. So, Wow. So how does that work? Why is it that if it's demethylated and then remethylated, why does that, why does the effect stick? 
that's the million dollar question. Uh, we t- Christian and I took reproductive pharmacology together, and it, it's it's pretty amazing how um, the your entire genome is demethylated during this first initial phases of pregnancy, and it's remethylated after that. And it's actually remethylated in pretty much the exact same way it was before the demethylation. How that happens, why it happens, we don't know. But all I, we can say is that that chemicals introduced during this critical phase will affect the ultimate remethylation and, and the end state of that. Um, but it's it's a hard question. I mean, this is all kind of bleeding edge of science stuff right here, and I'm sure a lot of what I've said here will be will be completely disproven down the road, and uh, or maybe some of it will be bolstered and and shown to be more even even more accurate. So I don't know. That's a long way to say I don't know. Did you come across anything that talked about um, maybe diet or lifestyle choices before you're even pregnant when you're trying to conceive or? Maybe not trying to conceive. I didn't in this case, but based on classes I've taken, based on, on what I've seen, is that these all can have, um, absolutely can have effects. Every choice you make during your life can have an effect. And we kind of mentioned this whole Lamarckian evolution versus um, versus uh, uh, Darwinian evolution. You know, Lamarck was saying that the reason the the giraffe's necks get longer is because it's stretching to reach up to the top of the canopy uh, where all the leaves are, and it passes that stretchingness down to the generation so its children will have longer necks too. That was laughed at forever, but it's showing that that maybe not in the giraffe, but generally this absolutely can happen. You're smoking, you're drinking, whatever it is, even though your DNA sequence hasn't changed, you can pass that along to subsequent generations. So there's no doubt that every every choice you make, good or bad, can have an influence on your on your offspring, you know. So I would probably argue a lot of these cases, it's much more about the, the effect of raising your child properly in a loving environment, providing your child with healthy food is much more influential than whether or not you smoked during college. But um, that's not to say that, that that does not have an effect at all. So, so yeah. Another reason yeah. to feel bad every time you do something, every time you have a cheeseburger or, or a drink or, or you, you take a hit <laughs> off the crack pipe, you should right. uh, realize you, you might be ruining someone else's life. And not just if you're female. Yeah, men too. Oh, I, oh, yeah. I didn't say that, but absolutely. Uh, male epigenetics is huge, and it's been shown that your male gametes are absolutely affected by, by their choices and their offspring. There was a study in Norway or whatever, and they were showing that through methylation patterns that it's grandchildren that are largely affected. And it's opposite of what you think. Uh, they have lots of feast and famine in, in those Icelandic or those Nordic countries. And they found that, that DNA methylation skips the effect, skips a generation, whereas uh, grandfathers who were well-fed and had good harvest and were fat and happy, their grandchildren, had that DNA methylation was affected, and they actually had, uh, had adverse effects on their lifespan and, and, and other aspects of their life, whereas if they were, the grandfather was in a famine era, their great-grandchildren, or their grandchildren, had positive effects from that and all through methylation studies and i can't tell you any more than that i know it sounds all all witchcrafty but uh but i think that's some real science they found so it's uh it's uh it's it's pretty nutty you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't 
Just do your best. That's really what it comes down to. Oh, and they said don't eat too much folic acid. You'd appreciate that. We always talk about everything in moderation. It's just proving out to be more true. Women who took an excess amount of folic acid to help with the spina bifida, spina bifida which is a, a methylation event here, they, um, they did not have the positive effects of the folic acid. So take whatever your doctor says to. Don't think doubling down is going to make it twice as good. Awesome. Yeah. Good to know. That's what I got. Sweet. Very cool, Scott. Yay. Sweet. And thank you, Aaron, I guess, for for bringing it up. He always puts cool stuff up there. I uh, It makes it very nice when it's time to time to pick a topic. So there we go. All right. Well, cool. we're 40 minutes in, so I think we need to just push on forward to sales and shit. Sales and shit. Christian Copley Salem will be your host for this latest tale of the microscopic and macabre world of your cells. Cells and shit. Yay. Um, so I'm going to do, it's not going to be long because I don't know if the topic could be run to death, but I think it's important to talk about it. Um, especially because we've talked about the GMO thing before. We had a guest on and had a pretty good discussion with him. And I found this article a while ago, not a long, long time ago, but a while ago. And um, basically, it's a, a story about how Kickstarter had jumped on the GMO bandwagon, kinda. And for anyone who doesn't know what Kickstarter is, Kickstarter is basically a crowd funding. Um, I forget there's a specific name for it, but it's a crowdfunding website where you go and you put up your project and people can send money and you promise them a reward if your project gets funded. So, for example, I would say, I'm going to build a car that flies and for everyone that donates more than blah, blah, blah money, I'll give them a car when I'm done, if I get funded for it. So then people pledge all this money and you either do or don't get funded based on how much money you get. Well, Kickstarter... Um, was sort of caught off guard, quote-unquote, when people were um, offering glow-in-the-dark plants. Oh, I remember this one. We talked yeah. about it. Did we? I don't remember it. Long ago. Did we talk about them banning said process? We did not, and it, speak about it on whatever level you want. I'm sure nobody remembers. Okay. It was a long time okay. ago. <laughs> Well, I don't think I don't, I'm pretty sure we didn't talk about the fact that Kickstarter actually put a put a byline into their laws that says that you cannot offer a synthetic biology product, a GMO product, as a reward for something getting funded. Because they were having all these green plants, and the the reward was if you submitted to this plant fund you got seeds for these plants. Yeah. Well, what the company went in and did is they changed their policy to say that you couldn't do that with GMO products. Um, you could not give out, you could still fund GMO or synthetic biology based ideas on their site, but you couldn't offer their product as a reward. Um, did they say why? Not really. Um, they basically, they just said, <laughs> their non-answer was, we aim to be as open as possible while protecting the health and creative spirit of Kickstarter for the long term. 
That was that was their response. So do you think it's just being those those liberal non-GMO scared people <laughs> like like or do you think that there's maybe something more to it? I don't I have no idea. It's a genuine question. Well, I and I think that that is the question that we need to ask because there are one of the concerns that we talked about when we discussed GMO products originally was the getting them out into the environment in an uncontrolled way. You know, we don't even need GMO products. We can bring a frog from wherever and put it in a pond in Nevada, and it's going to kill the entire ecosystem. Um, so if we're talking about people who are, you know, scientists and are doing this for a living, that's one thing because we know that they have interests in doing at least we hope that they have a, a majority of interest in not screwing things up. But we're talking about people on the Internet getting funded to send things out of their basement. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, um, the group that's – there's a sim, uh, synthetic biology group who's really big into like, oh, we're going to make – you know, synthetic biology is going to make, you know, artificial people in 20 minutes kind of um, thing. And they equated this. They said it puts synthetic biology in the same category as hate crimes and tobacco, <laughs> which to me, once again, you know how much I hate um, science reporting – that sounds ridiculous. It is ridiculous. To me. But do you think that they're warranted in saying, just as a blanket statement, that projects cannot offer genetically modified organisms as rewards? No, they need to justify it. And, and I don't know if they will have a good justification. There is a very gut strong reaction for people when it comes to GMO stuff and it is not scientifically based it is completely gut based and it not just drives Kickstarter that gut reaction drives policy and it's just something we have to deal with our only real option as scientists is to is to inform people uh, be kind of cheerleaders for for the good GMOs and what what what, what it actually means and and let people make their own decision at the end of the day so it's there's not a well, lot but, we can do well but then i'm gonna play devil's advocate here because I, I actually see a little bit of the point is this kind of technology because you and i both know what can and can't be done with synthetic biology i mean we can't create a woolly mammoth because we can't reassemble chromosomes that easily but we could put any sort of gene into any sort of organism. And if it doesn't kill the organism, then that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea. And do we want to put that in the hands of, you know, people on Kickstarter? Because if you get money and you have access to a lab, you can do these things pretty easily. Well, that's probably the, the single biggest concern. And I think I may even brought up when we talked about it last time is if this – if the – about it's about your GMO getting into the wild. If you have someone in their basement who is not being responsible, and they make a GMO product available that has huge downstream consequences because it ends up getting into the genomes of other plants and animals, then yeah, you've got yourself a real problem. And if that's their justification for doing it, then then that's probably their best scientific leg to stand on. But uh, but again. Um, well, thinking, I mean, they're not justifying anything because they don't have to. They can do whatever they want. I mean, they aren't, they aren't legally obligated to let people do whatever they want. Right. So for them, they don't really have to justify it. 
but I feel like it might be a smart move because they're not saying that these synthetic biology products, these GMO products, can't be funded. They're just saying the reward you give out can't be the GMO product itself. I think they just want to be implicated in any kind of consequences if, you know, down the line we find out that GMOs are bad. <laughs> you I think mean, they're just you know, they're, they're they're CYA, is that it? You know? Okay. Because, I mean, I guess, I guess they could then, I guess they could be sued for allowing people to receive those things as a reward. As normal, you're the voice of reason, Carolina. That's probably exactly <laughs> it. I yeah. Just, I, I feel like I should disagree with them, and I don't. Maybe. Like, I feel like I should be saying, oh, this is crap, you know, synthetic biology is fine, whatever. But it, it, it makes me feel a little weird letting people just sort of make them in their basement and send them out, which, if we think about it, really, this isn't going to stop that. It just stops Kickstarter from being in the middle of it. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I'm not usually the one who gets the willies about that kind of thing. But in this case, I was like, huh, maybe, maybe I don't necessarily disagree with them as much as I thought I should. <laughs> uh, well, the reality of the situation is that if Kickstarter doesn't stop them, I, it's, this seems like something ripe for the government to step in and about uh, basement science GMO stuff. like, uh, Or just, uh, I, I shouldn't even say GMO, I should just say synthetic biology, the basement synthetic biology thing, because uh, it does worry people, and um, I guess under the right set of conditions, you probably could do something that would negatively affect a lot of people. I mean, it couldn't be that hard to to get, you know, bacteria to produce snake venom. Ooh. I mean, <clears throat> seriously, unless the snake venom killed the bacteria, which a lot of it is, like, coagulative stuff, so it, it wouldn't really it have wouldn't, an effect. Because snake protein is a protein. And yeah. You have to pump out a protein and... And, Secrete it. And almost all snake venoms work by inhibiting potassium or sodium channels uh, that are specific to mammals uh, to stop hearts and brains and all that kind of fun mm-hmm. stuff. I bet a bacteria could produce it just fine and not get fucked up. Yeah. Bad so, words, I mean, sorry. well, whatever. <laughs> but they, you know, that kind of thing is something that could be done. And I'm not the big scare guy, but if I could do it. You just in- gave me an idea for my Kickstarter. Seriously, I could do it in 20 minutes, you know. So it's the kind of thing where I don't I don't think GMOs are evil, but I think that just like anything else, they're powerful. Sweet. And that means that they need to be, I don't know, maybe a little more controlled than, hey, some dude in, on the Internet got, you know, a million dollars to buy a bunch of lab equipment and, you know, make snake venom bacteria. It's like, <laughs> seems like it'd go horribly wrong really quickly. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being paranoid. I was... I was hoping somebody else would be like, that's ah, crap, and then I would look, you know. Great like, idea. Like yeah. The, yeah, seriously. So I don't know. All right. But that, well, was, that was my big thought for the day. I like it. It's, it's a very good thought, too. So yes. cool. Well, anyone and, else got any other thoughts on this, or should we put a bow on this episode? Wrap it. Wrap it. And go. Delbert. Thanks for pointing your ears towards us for another brazen episode of Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Today you learned in order to protect their rights of free food and sleeping late, Yale grad students have attempted to unionize. And from the didn't we already know this file, mice are afraid of men. Put down that cheeseburger, fatty, you might mess up your unborn, thanks to Scott Barnett. <laughs> Review of epigenetics in your diet. And finally, Christian informed 
us that we need to kickstart our GMO elsewhere. Thanks for listening <laughs> to another wonderful episode of the Sandwich Science Podcast. Please book us on Face Like and tweet us on Twitter. Wow, that was so refined compared to previous weeks. It was. It was. Sorry. Uh, so classy and mellow. Yeah. We're. I it think was a little low energy, but we're all on some type of quaalude tonight. I don't know what it is. <laughs> we are. Our poor children, right? I've just methylated another gene. <laughs> My kid got the boring gene. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Goodbye. Peace. Bye.